All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study of the word. Father, you have breathed out your word to us so that we are guaranteed that in the original it is infallible, without error, and that this is the sufficient revelation you have given to us that we may know all that we need to know about our salvation and all that we need to know about what you have provided for us in our spiritual life and how to live that spiritual life in the power and the strength provided by God the Holy Spirit. Father, we are thankful for these things. We're thankful for the fact that you have given us a new position as saints in the church, in this unique organism, the body of Christ in this dispensation that has a unique calling, a unique challenge, and unique blessings and privileges. Father, as we study Ephesians, help us to understand these things, open our eyes to the truth that are revealed here that we might have our understanding of the high calling we each have, uh, uh, that, that our awareness of that, our understanding of that would be expanded, and we might be challenged to live on a, on a higher level because of our understanding of who we are in Christ and what he has provided for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, where we are looking at this threefold division in Ephesians. The first three chapters describe the wealth that we have in Christ. The second, the next two and a half chapters describe our Christian life, the walk of the believer. And then the last part of chapter 6 describes the warfare of the believer, the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of the believer. And so we are in the beginning of this study. We are in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this tremendous uh, statement uh, that is made. It is a eulogy in the sense that it is a good saying. It is a word that provides uh, blessing to us, talks about the blessing that we have uh, from God in Christ, and it is uh, stated in a th- Trinitarian structure. It begins with the work of the Father, proceeds in the second section in verses uh, 7 down through uh, 11 to talk about what we have in Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and then the last Uh, two verses talk about God the Holy Spirit and his role in our life today. So as we go forward, we are in this section in verses 7 down through 12 talking about Christ, and we're spending some time talking about verse 10 and the significance of that. It is 
foundational as as Paul is talking about the the ultimate goal of where God is taking you and me as members of the body of Christ, that it is not just about our spiritual life here and now, but that our spiritual life here and now is a preparation for his plan for us in the coming kingdom when Christ returns. And to understand that enables us to live today in light of eternity. So we looked at the first two verses in this section, Ephesians 1, 7, and 8, where the emphasis is upon the wealth of God's grace, which he has lavished or abounded to us. Above all people of God in the scriptures, from those Gentiles who were saved between Adam and Noah to those uh, some Gentiles and many Jews who were saved between uh, Abraham and Christ, and also those who were saved during the ministry of Christ when he was on the earth, to those who were saved during the church age from the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. up to the present time and until the rapture, those in the church age are above and beyond all of those who preceded us. We have been given blessings that no one else has ever been given. We've been given privileges that no one else has ever been given. And beyond that, there is only one time when there will be believers who have more than we do, and that will come during the period known as the kingdom, the period known as the thousand-year reign of Christ or the millennium from the Latin word milli meaning 1,000. So we have these things in Christ, Ephesians 1, 7 says, and they are according to the wealth of God's grace. That's the standard, and it talks about the superabundance of what God has given to us. New American Standard translates verse 8, which he lavished upon us, which is a good term. It is what he abounded to us, in, indicating just the uh, superabundance of his blessings to us, and it all comes at the instant of salvation. There's no two-step, uh, two-step soterial, or excuse me, two-step sanctification where we get salvation at the cross and sanctification when we dedicate our our lives to Christ. We get it all at the cross. There's no two-step or three-step where we get. Part of it at the cross, part of it at dedication, and part of it is some subsequent baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is taught by some, and that is not biblical. We get it all at the cross. We get it all when we trust in Christ. And so from that point on, it is our responsibility to learn about what we have been provided and to live on the basis of that which has been provided for us. So the first thing that we looked at just by way of review is the wealth of God's grace to us. And part of that wealth has to do with his revelation to us in his word. We saw this in Ephesians 1 9 by making known to us. And what he makes known to us is his word. This is a phrase that specifically relates to his revelatory uh, ministry to uh, the writers of Scripture, the prophets in the Old Testament, 
the apostles in the New Testament who wrote down that which God revealed through them. That is what we know for sure. It is not through uh, rationalism. It is not through empiricism. It is not through some sort of internal uh, subjective feeling called uh, uh, intuition or something of that nature, which is uh, what lies behind mysticism. It is through that which was revealed by God through the writers of Scripture, recorded and preserved for us, that he makes known to us. And then we saw a third that this refers to the mystery of the mystery which he purposed in himself. And the term mystery refers to that which has not been revealed in the past, but is now revealed to us. So nothing was known or prophesied in the Old Testament about the present church age. It was silent. One of the reasons it was silent was that, that when we look at the scriptures, the reason the church comes into existence is because Israel rejected Christ as the Messiah at his first coming. Now, if there were prophets in the Old Testament who said, well, the Messiah is going to come, you're going to reject him, there's going to be a new people of God, then maybe some would say, well, wait a minute, we're not going to reject him. We're, we're, going to, we're going to respond. So it would have, as it were, put the thumb on the scale to change the dynamics. So it was a true, genuine offer of the gospel at the first coming, but Israel rejected that without any other information being given. And so then God, set, God disciplined them as a nation. Uh, the southern kingdom was destroyed a second time in the uh, invasion of the Romans and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. And then God had already instituted the church in A.D. 33. And so we are living now in this, in this church age. So the content of this mystery, this unrevealed information, is given in Ephesians 3, 5 through 6. This is foundational to understand what is happening in the body of Christ. Prior to uh, the, the origin of the church, God worked through his people Israel, the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this was a national ethnic group covenanted by God through Abraham, a covenant with Abraham and then the Mosaic covenant when they rejected the Messiah then God entered into a new phase of his plan with a new people not replacing Israel, but Israel is placed on hold, as it were, a pause button is hit for God's plan for Israel, and God is working through a new organism, the church, which is made up of both Jew and Gentile, something that the Jews did not know about, or understand in the Old Testament, and even at the beginning of the church age, they had some uh, difficulty. How do we understand this new relationship between Jew and Gentile? So in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 3, Paul defines this new information. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, you in these first three chapters is always addressed to his, his, uh, his audience, the Gentiles. The we or the us refers to Jews. 
For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. There's that word. We began studying it last time, dispensation. And that word became associated with a theological system called dispensationalism, and this is important for us to understand it, which is what we'll be spending some time on today. I remember some years ago a family friend who had an entire history of being involved in uh, in churches that were uh, that had a reputation for teaching the Bible. Usually, it was more evangelistic than anything else. But but she had brothers who were missionaries in Africa. She had cousins who were pastors, and we were talking around the dinner table, and I used the word dispensationalism, and she said, what's that from someone who prided themselves on knowing the Bible and knowing something about theology? And so I explained it, and she said, well, that's what I believe, but I've never heard that word before. See, this is why and sadly why so many Christians are just ignorant because they do not have pastors who feed them and teach them the word the word of god the vocabulary the teachings of scripture so that they can think with the vocabulary now somebody may say well well dispensationalism that word's not in new translations it's not because they're obscuring some things and that's part of their agenda but it is, we have to recognize that there are a lot of words that we use that were developed over uh, the early uh, stages of church history in the first two or three hundred years to help us think more precisely about the Bible. The word Trinity from the Latin word Trinitas was coined by an early church father named Tertullian from Carthage in North Africa around 150 or 160, so about a 100 years after Peter and Paul had died, he coins this word Trinity to describe the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But see, that after he coined that word, that meant that believers could think more precisely about the relationship of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit than the Apostle Paul did. Now, the Apostle Paul knew a lot. God had revealed a lot to him, but because he did not have that kind of vocabulary, he couldn't think as precisely about these things. And there are other words that have been coined. Uh, The term that came out of the Council of Nicaea to describe the relationship between the nature of Jesus to uh, of Jesus' humanity to his deity that was further developed in the subsequent three councils, concluding in the Council of Chalcedon, was a word, hypostasis, to refer to the union of those two natures, the hypostatic union, the humanity of Christ, the perfect humanity of Christ with the uh, undiminished deity. And so that that was another term that came into existence. So we use these terms uh, a lot and not realizing the history behind them. So Paul here talks of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, that by revelation he made known to me the mystery. He's not claiming exclusivity there. I keep pointing that out because there are some who think that this is exclusive to Paul. But we know that... In the very next verse, he talks also about how it was revealed by the Spirit 
to his holy apostles and prophets. It's not unique to him. He revealed this to all of the apostles. He said, this, this mystery which has been revealed, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. So right away we see the implication here that God looks at human history in terms of different uh, periods of time, different ages. And he says that this has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his apostles and prophets. So right away we know that there's information in the early church that was new, that was different. It was an advance upon that which had been revealed in the Old Testament. And this is at the core of our understanding of this idea of dispensationalism. Much of what you may read or hear about it uh, is very negative. Often it is uh, based on uh, misrepresentations of what dispensationalists uh, teach. I always think today that dispensationalists seem to be the favorite whipping boy of everybody else. And they blame dispensationalists for, for this or for that, and usually because they misunderstand and misrepresent what dispensationalists teach. So there's something new that's been revealed. Now, it's not a new salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, always. Old Testament, it was by grace through faith. They anticipated the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Savior. They looked forward to God fulfilling that promise. Now we look back to God's fulfillment of that promise, but it is still by grace through faith. But what's new is that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So there would be this new entity where Jew and Gentile were equal, not like the Old Testament where the Gentiles could only go come so close to the temple. They had to stay in the courtyard for the Gentiles. They could not come any closer. There was a distinction because God's emphasis was on Israel. Now that word dispensation, as I pointed out last time, was first introduced in Ephesians in Ephesians 1.10. And so we spent a little time talking about it last time because here he refers to the dispensation of the fullness of the times that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So we have the dispensation of the fullness of times. This is yet future, and that is what we gather from this context. It's a purpose clause. Something is happening now so that in the future, in this new period called the dispensation of the fullness of times, there will be this gathering together of all things in Christ. So we need to spend time on that, but first we're looking at this word uh, dispensation. It's the Greek word oikonomia, which can mean stewardship or administration. And I like the word administration. I don't think we would change the name to administrationalism, but it is the fact that God administers or oversees or manages human history in terms of different uh, stages related to what he has what he has revealed. So it is an idea of managing or administering the affairs of the household. The household would be equivalent to the history of man. 
And a steward is someone in charge of administering the affairs of the house. So in each one of these periods, there seems to be one group that has the blessing of God and is more uh, significant in terms of the the way God is working in that time period. So we started with what the Bible teaches about dispensations. We asked the question, what is a dispensation? The English word dispensation is from the Latin word dispensatio, which is a translation of oikonomia, and it has to do with dealing out, weighing out, dispensing, or distributing something. This is what a manager does. If you go to a restaurant and there's a floor manager, he's making sure that all of the uh, uh, servers are at the right tables at the right time. Everything is happening. He's overseeing the uh, distribution of the food from the kitchen to the server so that it's taken to the table. If you're working in a business, if you are the manager of a store, you're overseeing all the, your your uh, employees. You're making sure all of your product gets in so it's available to your customers. And so you are uh, in charge of the dispensing of the resources, the personnel, as well as the product. So that's the idea. It goes back to the concept of administration. So it's also related to the word economy. You can hear it, oikonomia, economy. See, economy in English is just brought over from that Latin word, and it, again, has the idea of regulating, administering, or planning. I talked about the fact that it's a compound word, oikos, meaning a house, and namas, meaning law. So in any household, in any business, you go through different stages, and at different times, certain policies, different procedures will come into uh, will come into place depending on the circumstances. So when we come to study the concept of dispensations in the Scripture, they're connected with the mysteries of God. As Revelation progressed, Noah knew more than Adam. Abraham knew more than Noah. Moses knew more than Abraham. Later on, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Daniel knew more than Moses. In the New Testament, the apostles knew more than the Old Testament prophets. With new revelation, there is a modification in the way God is administering uh, history. So now we are in an administration that is characterized by the grace of God. Not that the grace of God was not present in the Old Testament, but there is a further development in our understanding of grace because now the people of God in this age, the church age, are recipients of a greater amount of grace than Old Testament believers. They were recipients of grace. Salvation was always by grace through faith, but now there is more grace in a different way for believers. So we've seen two things, that this word means the act of administering or ordering something, uh, dealing out or distributing something, that is the way in which God's blessings might be manifest in that period of time, in that age, and second, the act itself of administering or dispensing with some requirement. So basic definition, a distinct and identifiable administration 
in the development of God's plan and purposes for human history. Now, that's important. That means by saying a distinct and identifiable administration, what I'm pointing out is there are specific characteristics that you can go to that are going to distinguish one time period for another. And so I developed this chart some years ago, modified it a little bit since last week because I noticed some things weren't quite as precise as they should be. There is a PDF of this up, not only associated with last week's lessons, but this lesson and also in the document section on the on the website. So the uh, what we have here is the age. There are broad ages. Sometimes an age is equivalent to a dispensation. Sometimes an age may be composed of more than one dispensation. The first age is the age of Gentiles. The second age is the age of Israel. Actually, this should go all the way across because the Messianic age when Christ is on the earth is part of the age of Israel. Um, so Gentiles and Israel up to the cross. Gentiles, the, there are no Jews. Everybody's a descendant of Adam. There is not a distinct people of God in terms of Israel until the Abrahamic covenant. So there are three dispensations initially, a perfect environment up to the fall. Then the next dispensation, because things change. I'm not going to talk about all of these this morning. We've gone through this many times. I have a two series, an older series on, called Dispensations and Covenants, and a newer series taught in 2014 on God's plan for the ages where I go through all of these things in detail. But what we see is in perfect environment, Adam and Eve are in the garden. There's a responsibility. They are the stewards because they have been created in the image and likeness of God, and they are to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, uh, the beasts of the field. They are God's representatives over the earth. They are created perfect in the image of God. They are perfectly righteous. There is a test, though. So what we see here is you have the steward, which is uh, Adam and Eve. The responsibility is to fulfill that creation covenant to uh, to rule over uh, the earth as God's stewards. There is the responsibility not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they failed. They ate the fruit, and the result was spiritual death. So obviously now something has to change. Now, certain things are going to be the same. They're still in the image of God, but something's changed. Now it's distorted. Now they become corrupted by sin. Now there has got to be a shift in the responsibility because they are no longer spiritually alive. But they are still human beings in the image and likeness of God. So the original creation covenant is modified in the Adamic covenant. Uh, now there are going to be certain changes in the relationship between man and animals. There's going to be uh, a change in the structure of the animals. All animals were herbivores before the fall. Now they're going to develop into being carnivores as well. Carnivores involve violence and death, something that was not there before. The serpent, of course, now is going to crawl uh, on the ground. And there's going to be animal sacrifice, which is introduced. No death before the fall, but now they're responsible for animal sacrifices to teach about as, as, a, as a visual 
is a very graphic visual image of such violence where you take this this lamb that's done nothing wrong and you have to lay it on the altar and slit its throat, identify your sins. And this is a picture of something that God will eventually do to solve the sin problem. Uh, evil and wickedness expanded on the earth, and God had to punish it with the flood. After the flood, there are changes, okay? I'm not going to go through all of those, but obviously it's a different environment. The, there is modifications to the covenant with Noah's covenant. Uh, now they're going to be allowed to eat meat. Now they are mandated to uh, instigate capital punishment for those who murder another human being. That was not in place. Cain killed his brother Abel, but God said nothing about capital punishment at that time. So this is something new because it's a new situation. They are now two steps removed from perfect environment. In the period immediately after uh, the sin of Adam and Eve, they're one step removed from perfect environment. So again, they're going to fail, and God will bring out a new people, the people of Israel that will be descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three, not just Abraham, not just Abraham and Isaac, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had another son, Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arabs. They are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are not part of this covenant that God made with Abraham. But with that covenant with Noah, the covenant, well, go back to the modification of the creation covenant with Adam, then the modification of that covenant again with Noah, and the new covenant that he makes with Abraham, each time God gives new information, new responsibilities, new obligations, and spells out new penalties. So life isn't the same after a new dispensation, a new way of managing human history comes into effect. So the age of Israel, again, I believe three dispensations, because you have new revelation with the Abrahamic covenant, you have new revelation with the Mosaic covenant, and when Jesus comes, there is new revelation. No one has ever seen God incarnate. He is there according to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. No one has seen God at any time, but the unique Son of God is here to reveal him. That's new revelation. There's a new message. That new message began with John the Baptist preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, had not, that was not there before. You didn't have that during the period of the patriarchs. You did not have that message under the law. But now you have new revelation. You have new revelation, the person of Jesus. You have a new message to respond to in the command to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a lot of dispensationalists do not put that as a separate dispensation, but many have in the past. And so it is, uh, but I think if you're going to take the basic breakdown of these qualifications for new for a new dispensation, that there is revelation, there's a new penalty. A penalty, when Israel rejected the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, Jesus announced punishment on them that they would be taken out and they would be removed and the temple would be destroyed. So 
there's a, a new new uh, uh, punishment for failure, new judgment for failure, and they are scattered. And so this uh, then leads to a new dispensation, new revelation in terms of the New Testament, which is given, and the gospel to believe in Jesus, that he is the only way. As Peter told uh, the Sanhedrin, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It is exclusively faith in Jesus. This present church age will end with the rapture of the church. Why? Because in the Old Testament, for example, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel prophesied that there would be a period of 490 years from the decree for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the fortifications of Jerusalem. From the, the, that decree, which we can date forward, there would be 490 years. But the last period, was, which is commonly referred to as Daniel's 70th period of sevens or 70th week, that Christ was... Uh, is prophesied in that prophecy to be cut off before that last seven-year period. Remember, all 490 years are for my people, or for, excuse me, for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city, not the church. So there is that, that distinction. And so this is why the church must be removed from this plant so that the shift will go back to Israel, go back to the Jews, that will be followed by a seven-year period of unprecedented violence and hell on earth, twice. Old Testament in Daniel and in the New Testament, Matthew 24, it is stated that this will be unlike anything else that ever happens in history. And this is called the tribulation period. It ends with Jesus' return to the earth. He establishes his kingdom who destroys the armies of the Antichrist at the campaign of Armageddon. He establishes his new new kingdom, and the new covenant then goes into effect. We are not under the new covenant right now. That is a covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not with the church. Okay, and so we have the millennial kingdom, which ends with a, during that period, Satan is bound. When Satan is released, he leads a revolt against Christ and then it, he will be destroyed. All the unbelievers are destroyed by brimstone and fire coming down from heaven, and this will be followed by the great white throne judgment. Now, how about that for a quick overview? Okay, that's it. If you've got that, you've got the overview of history. Now, the, the real, one reason that's important is as we get into verse 10 and we talk about the dispensation of the fullness of times, we will see that that refers to this period called the Millennial Kingdom. And we'll see why and what the uh, arguments are for that. So this is what we talk about when we talk about dispensationalism. Now, last week I gave this as sort of a thumbnail understanding of dispensationalism, that it's a theological system which understands that God sovereignly governs the history of the human race through a sequence of divinely directed administrations marked by distinctive periods of time as he works out his plan to destroy sin and evil. I think I'm going to revise that. I need to add something there about 
the progress of revelation, which is what I'm emphasizing here because we have mystery doctrine. That's verses 9 and 10 are talking about new revelation. Now, when we look at this, from God's viewpoint, a dispensation is an administration. He's administering human history. When we look at a dispensation, it's a responsibility. What is What was Abraham's responsibility? What was Moses' responsibility? What is the responsibility of Israel when Jesus appears as the Messiah? What were they supposed to do? What is the mission of the church? What is our responsibility? That is the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, that we are to take the gospel to all the world, uh, baptizing uh, believers in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all things that Jesus taught. But from the viewpoint of the progress of Revelation, a dispensation is just a stage in the progress of Revelation. God gave a certain amount of information to Adam before the fall. So that stage is based on a limited amount of information. He gives more information after the fall. He gives more information in the period after the flood. He gives more information after Abraham. So each dispensation is a stage in the progress of revelation. Now, another thing that's important to understand is that in the development of our understanding of what some have called dispensational truth, that in the early 60s, a professor at Dallas Seminary, head of the theology department at the the time by the name of Charles Ryrie, wrote a book called Dispensationalism Today, recognizing since the early days under a uh, British theologian by the name of John Nelson Darby, up through the time of Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, that refinements had been made in the understanding of dispensationalism. Now, that's important to understand that these are refinements. And so I'll use the illustration of a house. You have a house. Everybody here lives in a house. You live in an apartment. You live some kind of place. And every now and then you get a little bored with the way things look. You may move pictures from one room to another room. You may buy some new furniture. You may repaint some rooms. You may change the carpet. But it's the same house, okay? And you haven't really modified it. You have just improved things, refined things. That's refinement. Changing is when you come in and you bring in uh, a construction team and they knock out a few walls they may open up the back and put in a uh, indoor outdoor patio they may do different things of that nature where it be it is completely remodeled expanded and it is not the same house i can think back when i sold my parents house uh, seven years ago some about a year or two later i went by i didn't even recognize the place it was still very similar. I could still tell it was the same basic structure on the same foundation, but it was very different. I would not have uh, necessarily known it. The reason I use that illustration is because traditional or historical dispensationalism has had refinements. The paint's been improved, new windows, 
but basically the same. It's just a few modifications. Something came along when I was in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary called Progressive Dispensationalism. One of its architects was one of my professors in a, in a seminar, doctoral seminar class, and um, one of the things we said was this is not dispensationalism. They called it progressive dispensationalism, and one of the most telling comments about it that came out in that time was by a former Dallas Theological Seminary professor by the name of Bruce Waltke. Uh, Dr. Waltke's brilliant in Hebrew, but theologically he's been all over the map since he left Dallas, but and he is now a covenant theologian, which is a contrast to uh, dispensationalism. And he's written quite a number of books. He's highly respected as a, as a Hebrew scholar. But he made the comment in a book review on the first book that came out on progressive dispensationalism. He said, they don't want to admit it, but they are now covenant theologians. See, he recognized that they so changed dispensationalism that it wasn't dispensationalism anymore. It was really amillennial covenantalism even though they claim to believe, and they do believe in a, in a pre-mill, but it has changed. So in the midst of all of this, give you a little historical background, Dr. Ryrie wrote a book called Dispensationalism Today where he tried to get to the essence of what makes a dispensationalist a dispensationalist. How is their thinking distinct from other systems and from other uh, views of Christianity? He said there are three essential elements. The first is a consistent, that's the most important word, because others believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, but they do not always literally interpret prophecy. They be, so it, dispensationists believe in a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Bible. This is very, very important. I remember, like, you know, you know those times you say, wow, I, so and so, this guy and this guy are getting together. And I wish I was a fly on the wall. I was a fly on the wall. I just happened to be standing in a group when Bruce Waltke walked up to Ed Bloom and Elliot Johnson. Elliot Johnson has written a book about that thick on the essentials of dispensationalism. He was one of our speakers several years ago at the Chafer Conference. And these guys were all young together. I think they all were at, in seminary together. They had all been on faculty together. They're all old friends. And Waltke walks up to these other two guys, and they, and they begin to just kind of kid each other. And Johnson says, well, are you ready to admit that Israel in Romans 9 is still talking about the Jews? and that the land that God promised Abraham is real is real estate and not heaven. And Walkie just laughed and said, no, it's heaven. <laughs> Did Abraham understand it that way, Johnson said? And so then they just kind of laughed and went on, but they were just teasing each other because Walkie no longer believes in a consistent literal interpretation the land that God promised Israel is now spiritualized to be heaven, not a literal piece of real estate between the Mediterranean and the Euphrates, okay? So they're not consistent in their literal interpretation. 
The second flows out of the first. If you are consistent in your literal interpretation of the Bible, then you realize that God has a distinct plan for Israel and a distinct plan for the church, and that the church does not replace Israel. The church is a unique and distinct body of believers. God still has a plan for Israel, and God will eventually restore them, and there will be a a spiritual revival among the Jewish people in the tribulation period, and they will accept Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus will return and establish the kingdom. This is why we believe it is important to always be in support of Jewish people, be against anti-Semitism, be in support of Israel as a nation, not because they always do things right. Uh, you know, some people always ask that question, well, can I criticize Israel Maybe they're doing something wrong, and I don't believe it's right. That's not anti-Semitism. If that were anti-Semitism, then most of the Israelis would probably be anti-Semitic because there's an old proverb that where you have two Jews, you have three opinions. And so you go to Israel, and there are many different views on what should be done. I think there's over 20 political parties. You just can't keep, and they change. From one election to another, though, a couple of them are, get small and they become uh, dissolved and then they bring in some new ones. You can't keep it straight. I don't even try anymore. Uh, just a couple of the big ones like uh, Likud and Labor, a couple like that. So God has a plan for Israel, a plan for the Jewish people. He has yet to fulfill all of his covenants to Israel, and so there must be a time in the future when he restores them, gives them all of the land he promised Abraham, and there will be a descendant of David who sits on a literal throne in Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Uh, They have all of the land in fulfillment of the land covenant, and then he will bring it to pass the new covenant, which he stated in Jeremiah 31, 33 to 35. So that's the distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And then the third one, a lot of people don't understand. It's the overall purpose for God's plan, uh, of God's plan for his creation is his glory. Because if you read Reformed writers, covenant theologians, they all believe that we are to live for the glory of God. In fact, they make some pretty strong statements about that, which are accurate. The difference is that in dispensationalism, we believe that everything in God's creation, everything God has revealed in his word, is all ultimately for his glory. In covenant theology, the purpose for history is redemptive. And so the scripture, the ultimate unifying theme in the Bible is redemption. What's left out? Israel. Excuse me, not Israel. The angels. The angels. What about the fallen angels? How do they fit into that? Some almost 30 years ago now, in fact, this year we sat down to write a spiritual warfare book. Tommy Ice and I did. And a friend of mine, Dr. Joe Wall, asked me in that time, he said, well, Robbie, have you ever thought about why it is that the issue of the angelic conflict and the issue of of uh, spiritual warfare is not a significant aspect of reformed thinking. I thought about that, and I said, well, that never occurred to me. And he said, well, the reason is because with their limited view of the purpose of history as being redemption doesn't apply to angels. Angels don't get redeemed. 
And I thought, wow. And there's some other things like that uh, related to to uh, understanding what's left out when you have a narrow view of the purpose of history. There's a lot more to talk about in terms of God's glory. But I want to take each of these apart a little bit and explain them in literal interpretation, it's the natural or usual construction or implication of a writing or expression. See, a lot of people think literal means that if you are using an idiomatic phrase like, uh, I just want to kick back, that literally, in a wooden literal view, that would mean some, something involved with kicking, maybe kicking somebody in the back. But it's a idiom. Kicking back has a, is an idiom, and it has a specific meaning, to relax. It always means that. It never means anything else. So it's not a wooden literalism where you take the uh, dictionary meaning of kicking and the dictionary meaning of back, and somehow you come up with that meaning, but it's talking about how words are used or phrases are used. So the definition for... In, uh, literal interpretation is when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense. Okay, if you read Scripture and it makes sense to you, just on the basis that, you know, well, that's, that's literal. But if you're reading, for example, in poetry, you're reading in Song of Solomon, and Solomon is praising his lover and he says, uh, describing various things, he says, your cheeks are like pomegranates. And your throat is like the Tower of David. Well, if you take that literally, the Tower of David's pretty rocky and not very attractive. And a pomegranate is round and hard. You know, what does that mean? You know, so what's the comparison? It's a figure of speech, and it makes sense if you think of the rose, rosy color, the red color of a pomegranate. He's talking about a rosy cheeks. And the Tower of David is graceful and elegant. It's tall, and so she has a long neck. But you have to understand the metaphors and the similes in order to properly interpret Scripture. That's literal interpretation because these metaphors have a literal meaning. And so that is what what we look at. As a result of that, we recognize that certain things must always be taken literally. Israel means ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The church means the church, this entity that began at Pentecost on A.D. 33, described in Acts 2, and ends at the rapture of the church. Israel does not mean the spiritual church, and the church does not mean spiritual Israel. They are not the same. They are distinct entities. For example, in Romans 9.3, Paul says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites. He's Jewish. He is a Jew that trusted Christ as Savior. Today we would call him a Messianic Jew. He says, these, according to my flesh, are Israelites to whom pertain, present tense, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, They all still apply to Israel. It's literal. The giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, they still belong to Israel. They're not taken away from Israel and given to the church. They still belong to Israel. 
At the end of that section from Romans 9 to Romans 11, talking about God's righteousness in relationship to his dealings to Israel, Paul concludes and he says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now, what does mystery mean? Previously unrevealed information. So this is, this is new information. Israel rejected the Messiah, and they're put on hold. He says, uh, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And that word until is really important. It means something's going to change. I'm not going to get to the end of this to, this morning. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to see this same idiom in the Greek. And it means that when, some, when it reaches a point, something changes to a new situation. So it says there's this blindness in Israel until, and at the until moment, the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. As it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. What happens is the Jews turn to Jesus as the Messiah and call upon him to come and deliver them. And Paul concludes with a statement uh, that is made, God is the speaker here in these verses quoted from the Old Testament, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now the third aspect is glory. In the church age, we have this principle from Paul. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We've studied glory a lot. Glory is a word that in its literal meaning from the Hebrew, it means heavy. It came to mean that which is important and significant. In other words, whatever we do, we should be demonstrating the significance and importance of God in our life. If you're working, you are living to, you're working to the glory of God, that means you're demonstrating that your relationship to God is vital and important, so vital and important to your work life that you would not be the same worker if you weren't working for, for the glory of God instead of just working for your human boss. Glory emphasizes the fact that we are doing something to illustrate his significance, his power, and his authority. And glory isn't always that which we think of in terms of this bright effulgence of his, or brilliance of, of his being, where it's associated with light. For example, in John 1, 14, John says, The Word, that's a Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, many of you will remember that John and his brother James and Peter were taken by the Lord up to what is called the Mount of Transfiguration, and it was there that the Lord revealed his glory to them, and Elijah and Moses appeared also. It's called the Mount of Transfiguration. That's not what he's talking about. That's what most people think of. We beheld his glory. We think of the Mount of Transfiguration. But look at what happens after the first miracle. Jesus is incognito at this wedding in Cana. And his mother Mary comes and says, look, they've run out of wine. We need some wine. I know you can just 
you know, perform a miracle and the wine is going to be there. Would you please do it? And he says, it's not my time, but he's going to do it anyway. And when the miracle of changing the water into wine is complete, John comments, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Was there any brilliant light? Did anybody there other than Mary know what where the new wine came from? Did anybody see it? No, but the fact that he turned the water into wine manifests his power. It manifests his character. He provides it graciously. And all through John, the expressions that deal with the, pre- the glory of, of Jesus at the first advent are not like the Mount of Transfiguration. They are things that Jesus does that demonstrates who he is, his power, his authority, his character, his love for man. And so this is fundamental. In, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, we see this phrase repeated uh, three times, that things are done uh, for his, his glory. For example, at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 6, it's done to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then we come down to the end of, uh, of verse 12. It's done to the praise of his glory. And we come down to the end of verse 14 related to the Holy Spirit's to the praise of his glory. And then you have Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And then in verse 18, the eyes of your understanding uh, being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches or the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then this opening section ends in Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. See, it's all about ultimately glorifying God, and we have to come to understand what that means and how that relates to us in terms of our, our, our daily walk with the Lord and our spiritual growth and the way in which we are to manifest his character in this dispensation. So we'll come back and move forward a little bit looking at the phrase dispensation of the fullness of time when we start next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the uniqueness of this administration of grace in this period, the church age, and our distinct role in it, and how we are trophies of your grace, and we are to manifest your grace and be testimonies to your grace through all this time. And that is how we we demonstrate your your glory, your essence, your character, your importance, your significance. So, Father, we pray that as we reflect on what we've learned today, that it would challenge us in how we live, why we live, and what we're living for in preparation for eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here today or listening online or listening later to this message that has never believed in Jesus as Savior, that they would come to understand that that is the issue in salvation. It's not about how good we are. It's not about doing the right thing. It's not about how we can impress you. It's about what Jesus Christ did for us. It's not about what we do for you. It is about what Jesus did in paying the penalty for our sin, and we understand that he died for us, and we trust him and accept him as our Savior. And all that is necessary is to believe that. The instant that we say in our souls, I believe that, that's true. Jesus died for me. At that instant, we're born again, we're given your righteousness, we're given eternal life that can never be taken 
from us. Father, we thank you for these things. And Father, we pray that as we go forward today, tomorrow, that we will have a uh, renewed emphasis on our own personal study of the Word, our own personal reading of the Word, our own personal advance spiritually, that we may fulfill your plan for church-age believers in this life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.